Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Don't tell me not to live, just sit and putter. There really are no words to describe the talent, the career, the woman that is Barbara Streisand. Streisand burst on the scene in 1964 with Funny Girl on Broadway. Right when it felt like the suburbs and McCarthyism might go on forever, the Beatles show up on The Ed Sullivan Show, and on Broadway, along comes this phenomenon, this totally new, unusually gorgeous, nakedly ambitious Jewish girl from Brooklyn in clothes so wildly bright, they'd blow out your new color TV. She kept her name. She kept her nose. She kept that accent. She could not be more different from what wasp culture told women they should be. New York is just full of unusual and interesting girls who are starting out in show business, but few of them have the style as early as this young lady. She's 19 years old. Her name is Barbara Streisand. And then she gets on stage. She's grounded, she's powerful, and she's got the greatest voice America has ever heard. Over the following years, we also learn she's a great actress. Here she is trying to win Redford's love in The Way We Were. Sure, I make waves. I mean, you have to, and I'll keep making them until you're every wonderful thing you should be and will be. You'll never find anyone as good for you as I am to believe in you as much as I do or love you as much. I know that. Well, then why? Streisand develops a reputation for being difficult and for being a bit of a recluse. She gets married, divorced, has a kid, but all the while she just keeps getting better and more famous until she's this unique character in American culture, a megastar on her own terms. Since we first met in 1990, we become friends. We talked at her home in Southern California. 
By the way, Stella, do me a favor. Take the clock uh -huh. and make sure it works, like it has needs batteries or wound or... Okay. Okay? Thank you so much. You walk around the house and you have a, you, you just, you're just making lists. Just goes, you're making lists. How is this not taken care of? You see, to work for somebody like you or me, you have to understand the artist's temperament. People don't see that the time is wrong. Well, I wasn't going to start with this, no, but I'll ask you. But I'll ask you. <laughs> because that instinctive eye for detail and just thinking all the time about, I want this, I want this, I want this, is that what naturally propelled you into directing films? Well, that, yes, that, and also it was something that happened during the way we were, where two scenes were cut out that were intrinsic to the value of the story. And it made me so crazy that they couldn't see that. That propelled it, you into directing films? That propelled films. me into it. I, I couldn't understand it. And it's hard to quarrel with a, you know, a hit movie. I don't know if it was a hit at the time, tell you the truth. It's grown to Let's be a hit. Let's say it was. <laughs> Warren Beatty said to me once, he said, until you take ultimate responsibility and you're willing to direct the movie, you're going to be constantly frustrated. He said, you must consider that if you it don't was, have a... It was so delicious. And it's like... You know, when you finally have the power to control your work, you, you get very humble in a sense. It's like I wanted to give power away to other people as well. You know, I would say to my stand-in, you run that course uh, with the cameraman. This is the shot, but I want you to be able to tell me where to stand. In other words, it's a feeling of such gratitude where you, you never have to raise your voice because everybody's finally listening. You don't have to get angry about anything. They weren't listening before, sometimes? Well, sometimes when I would say things as just an actress, like this is what I'm telling you, this story of right. the way we were, it went um, on deaf ears. You know, they didn't agree with me, whatever. But when you see something so clearly... Um, that's wrong to me, or what could be right. Or... See, I had such a great time directing Yentl because I did it in England and in Czechoslovakia. In England, they're not afraid of women, powerful women, strong women, because they had a queen, they have a queen, and at the time they had the prime minister, who was Margaret Thatcher. So... I was shocked at the respect that I had as a first-time director. Couldn't believe it. Um, and the, the crew was so kind and just, it was the most wonderful experience, I must say. And even the, um, the Czechoslovakian government was wonderful to me because I needed Jews to be in the synagogue and pray and so forth. And <laughs> You know, it was during communist times, and they went to the Jewish community, thank God, and had them come, so I didn't have to teach them how to be Jewish, you know, how to pray. They gave you some real Jews. Uh, real Jews. Yeah, it wasn't Italians dressed as Jews, <laughs> like in New York. <laughs> Where they have to say, well, how do you stand in a synagogue, and how do you pray, and it was, it was wonderful. And also, well, you know, when you have extras 
in Czechoslovakia then, they didn't give them lunch. So the, the people would come with like bags of their lunch, which broke my heart. So I would, you know, give them our food, which we never had vegetables. We had to send to London or France or Italy to get vegetables because, you know, their food diet was like hot chocolate. I loved it, of course, bread and butter and hot chocolate in the morning with whipped cream Those on it. Those are my kids. <laughs> yes. I was in heaven. Was. And I wanted to be thinner, but, well, and every day I would, not every day, but every few days I would bring in pasties, you know, with that delicious dough and the meat inside. And I, we'd always have the most delicious teas that I'd bring in those cream... Uh, like donuts shaped like a hot dog from Wimpy's and, you know, eat this delicious cream with the donuts. Oh, my God. It was so good. You had a good time. And they, it was very sweet because the whole crew wrote a letter. That's one of my prized possessions, I must say. And they wrote this letter to the newspapers. And it said that, you know, Miss Trisand, something like Miss Trisand never raises her voice and has a smile for us every day, and it's like not the stories we've heard about her, and no newspaper would publish it. <laughs> but it figures. It's like Hillary Clinton. As you said, the upside of that experience with Yentl was working in a culture where the power of women was just accepted. And I'm, I'm crestfallen, to say the least, about what happened here, not just because this guy won, but I really do think misogyny and... Well, in 1984, in I did get some sort of award from Women in Film directing Yentl, and a lot of my speech was about women against women because the reviews of Yentl from women were vicious. You know, in other words, they didn't even talk about this celebration of womanhood, that a woman could not only, you know, make dinner and have babies, but she could have an intellect. She could want to study, be something more do than... Do what men do. Huh? Do what men do. Do what men do, just equality, you know? So to read a review that said her... She wore a design... In the New York Times, she wore a designer yarmulke. Now, everything... Every piece of clothing in that movie was authentic. That yeah, yeah. same year, there was the film directed by Ingmar Bergman, Fanny and Alexander. They wore the same yarmulke, but nobody attacked that film. I love detail. So I would, you know, for years I would do research about Polish Jews, about these Jews, that Jews. Everything, the Evil Institute in New York, um, uh, talking to scholars, studying Talmud, just to bring that, because I do believe that when you study like that and do the research, you don't have to act that. It's like the camera picks up the truth, even just behind your eyes, in the sound of your voice, whatever it is. Mine, you know, I had this wonderful uh, shot, I thought, because it cuts from a chicken coop to me sitting behind the bars up, separated from the men in a shul. And that shot was attacked by this woman critic. Janet Maslin, her name was. Now, she could attack my lip sync, because that's true. I'm a terrible lip synker. I can't do it because when I did movies like Funny Girl or Hello, Dolly, you know, they record the soundtrack three months before you shoot. And I have to be in the moment as an actor. 
I don't know how I'm going to feel when I actually perform it. So that's why when I did the movie uh, Star is Born, it's all real. It's all, um, I had a You didn't want to replicate. I did not want, I needed to be free to be in the moment. So we recorded on the spot. What do you call that? Live. It was all live. And then what I would do is, um, because I had final cut on that movie, I could control those things. Um, we would shoot the close-ups first, so where the performance really counted. And then I would just choose it right on the spot. Okay, I think... And I would do about one to four takes. You know, all these stories about me, like I do right. millions of takes, most of them are false. And so let's say I would take take three, you know, and then move the cameras back to do the wider shots. And match to that and match take. It because you didn't have to see me close, you know, not doing the lip sync good. I did a documentary film about Cannes. It's ostensibly about Cannes. And Ryan Gosling, oh, yeah. we corner him at a, at a yeah. hotel yeah, here. Yeah, I think I saw it. This thing called Seduced and Abandoned. And we get Gosling at the Beverly Hills Hotel, or the Bel Air Hotel, I yeah. should say. Anyway, long story short is he has this beautiful explication of how agonizing it is to shoot films. And just in that kind of Arthur Murray, by numbers, way we have to shoot. Well, match to this and yeah. match to this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It can't be fresh, and it's painful. No, and that's why I love long takes, because I think I'm from the theater, and we had to do a whole show, right? So I don't like pieces. I mean, you, I, the fun of directing, to me, is designing the shot, the camera, accommodating the actors. So the actors, there's a lot of scenes in Yentl that you can see like this. They're all in one move, practically. In other words, we come in through a door, and I'm in, in the foreground, let's say, but he who's following me, the, my lead actor, uh, who was Mandy Patinkin at mm -hmm. the time, and he still is, <laughs> but, um, you know, we see him standing there, and then he comes forward, and I sit down. He becomes, he's standing up, but the camera never moved, but you see everything. Then the camera moves as we're together, but it doesn't cut. And then he has, you know, when, when he leaves me, you see him go out the door, he slams the door, and the camera moves in a little bit as I'm thinking about it. That's the scene. But it's all, what's fun about that is that we're all on our toes. You can't make a mistake. In most of these shots that I do that, there's no coverage. Like the, Woody. Huh? Like, oh, is like that right? Woody and Scorsese, the, the greatest films, there's very little coverage. The actors because, play the scene in the frame. They really right. play it. That's right. Now, now, in the time that you made films, the many years you've made films, successful acting and not directing, successful as a director and producer and all those things, were there people that you wanted to work with? Were there people you sat there and said, God, I'd love to make a film with that person? Because you've been in such a privileged place and had all these people available to you. Was there a director that you dreamed of working with that you didn't get to work with? Well, Ingmar Bergman is a person that contacted me to do a remake of The Merry Widow. And I was so excited, you know, and I came to um, Sweden and we embraced. And it was this wonderful embrace, you know. I mean, he, I can't explain what, that, what that's like. It was just, he, he sort of understood me. And I understood him without any words. And the first act of that screenplay was fantastic. I mean, very bawdy, uh, kind of shocking. I loved it, you know. 
So uh, then, and I have letters now. I, I forget things until I have to go into my archives and look at this stuff. Letters from him and notes that I wrote back to him talking about this film. And what happened? The second act. You know, he says, we're going to be collaborators. And the second act was not very good, I thought. It was like, like, did you ever see Amadeus? I'm sure you did. Sure. The first act was extraordinary to me in the movie, and the second act was, I don't know, just somehow repetitious. It, it didn't go far enough in the story, you know? And that's the way I felt about this, and all of a sudden, it was gone. The collaboration was over. We never made the film. And I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, the fact that I didn't like certain things in the second act. That he liked. Well, he never defended it. It was like, you don't think that's right? And so, but I would have loved to work with Bertolucci and Scorsese. You know what I did? I realized this now in looking back at my life. I turned down Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Right. And I, you know why I turned it down? I didn't, at that point, I didn't realize who Marty Scorsese was, number one. Any movie I turned down, I regret only because they weren't attached to directors. I was offered Julia, and, there, you know, there was no director. To do Jane's part. Yeah, and Lillian Hellman came to my house and said, how could you ha have not played me? You're Jewish. I'm Jewish. It, you should have played me. I said, I was editing A Star is Born. And so I was in the middle of having to finish that movie. But, and I didn't know Fred Zinnemann was going to be the director. I turned down Cabaret because I didn't like the show. I didn't know Bob Fosse was going to be the director. I would have done it just for Bob Fosse. He was attached to Funny Girl before uh, Jerry Robbins even. I loved him, but he didn't get along with Ray Stark. But Alice doesn't live here anymore. It was the part of a, of a girl who uh, couldn't sing. She was like a bar piano player. I know, the film. I know the film. I remember thinking, I don't know if I could do that, because like, people associate me with being a good singer. And so yeah. are they going to believe me as, you screwed a, up that as a shitty singer? And that's why one of the reasons I played a crappy, you know, untalented uh, singer-songwriter in that movie was a flop. What was it called again? <laughs> All Night Long. Because it was an interesting challenge, and I never forgot the fact that I should have played Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Isn't that funny? And I played this kind of ditzy person who I was basing it on a friend of mine who actually was so ditzy that she, you know the phrase, up the creek? She was leaving my other house that has a stream, the place I lived before in Malibu, and she actually drove up the creek. You know, and so I used her, that's why she was very blonde, and I kind of used her as my prototype for that character. But if I had done Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, probably... Might have had a different career. Yeah, 
Everything's meant to be. I know, isn't it? What I love is when you talk about your career, you genuinely mention these things. And for me, I have to do the, the, the gag version of that. What is that? So I'll be on the set of a film and I'll say, you'll say to me, when you were a young actor, did you ever do a scene in a movie that was cut out? I go, oh, yeah. I said, I had an amazing scene in The Godfather. I mean, I had a scene that was incredible in The Godfather. And, and you're lying to? Of course. And when The Godfather was made, I was 13 years old. And they'll sit there for him and go, how old was he when The Godfather? Because you're a good actor. <clears throat> So they believe what you're I'm saying. I'm a good actor. I'm full of shit or whatever. By so the I'm way, come wait, there was something I was going to tell you. No. I turned down a lot of films because I was lazy. I'm basically, I'm, I'm a dichotomy here. Lazy and, um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, restless. Restless, maybe, yeah. Like wanting to create if and we did a soap I, about you, it would be called The Lazy and the Restless. But what anyway, do you have? You, I'm joking. Oh, no, that's a very good the title. Young, the Lazy no, and the yeah, Restless yeah, yeah, would be yeah, your yeah, daytime yeah, drama. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love to take a vacation and do nothing. I like to have no appointments. I, mean, that, I think that's a condition in my mind of people who have tremendous, not so much financial success, but creative success. I mean, there's a famous actress who I won't name. Wait, you know what? Do you want to take a sip of soup on your... Bring her her soup. Do you want soup, too? I'll, I'll have a soup. I mean, we Who can... might I say no? Well, I mean, this is a I'm podcast, Irish. It's bad right? luck to say no to soup. Is that right? In Ireland. Oh, dear. I just made that up. <laughs> oh, just put that over here. Oh, see, I just brought this uh, table from the back. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And we need another table maybe over here. Sure, because this is miso soup. Don't worry about me. I'm great. I mean, in other words, people know we eat... Right. Right? So if they hear a sound, it's okay? Good, 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 good. Because I always like we'll to cut eat. cut out the eating. Oh, really? No, you, no, you won't. Mmm. That is delicious, isn't it? And healthy. Um, what were we talking about? Restless uh, and lazy. To be clear, lazy was her word, not mine. I'd never call Barbara Streisand lazy. One of the many artists Barbara Streisand has worked with is a legend in his own right, Tony Bennett. Like Barbara, Tony has a team behind him making sure his brand is as strong as his voice. Leading that team for Tony Bennett is his son Danny. His dad seemed to expect it of him. At the age of 12, he would come to me and he'd go like, oh, I don't know, I got this thing, and blah, blah, blah. what do you think? He didn't delineate. And you know what? I mean, you know, it's like, I guess, you know, at the turn of the century, kids at 12 and 13 were working the fields. My interview with Danny Bennett is at heresthething.org. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, 
Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie-loving friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Mother's Day is right around the corner. And in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Barbara Streisand had pretty straightforward ambitions when she was starting out. When I would talk to McCartney about the Beatles, he'd say to me, it was hard work. Later on, when they gain creative control of their material, and it's like anybody, then they take a year to do another album. But (laughs) in the beginning, they really worked like dogs, you know? I think you're right. And for you, I'm wondering, in the beginning, Mm -hmm. when you do Broadway, are you out there and you're just so pumped and excited and you're young and everyone's glorifying you and loving what you're putting out there and you really love it or you're sitting there going, I don't want to do this show eight times a week. Like, what happened to you in the beginning? Were you excited and game? In the in the beginning, I wanted to prove myself. Right, right. I wanted to prove to my mother that I could be a success. Right. You know, it comes from that. It's like really deep. It's deep and quiet. It's not loud, by the way. It's not what makes Sammy run. It's quiet. It really is. Um... But again, you can feel that passion. You can feel that need to be seen somehow. Because I wasn't seen much by my... I, didn't, I lost my father. How old were you when your dad passed away? 15 months. But my mother said that after he died, I would climb up on the window waiting for him to come home. Because I used to do that, I guess, as a baby and wait for him and he would come home. And... In a sense, I've idolized my father because he was a PhD. He was a teacher, which I so respect, teachers. And he wrote poems, and he was artistic. And he was a, an athlete as well as a, a debater. 
you know, and he, and he was in part of French dramatics and English literature, and I didn't read his thesis till many years later, because me as an actress, when I was 16, I was fascinated by Eleonora Dusa and um, Sarah Bernhardt wanting to be an actress. And my father's books were tied up in the basement of our Brooklyn apartment. Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, all the great novels. I read, uh, what do you call it, Nancy Drew Mysteries. I read movie magazines, you know, and dreamed that someday... Maybe I could be famous. Did you have that dream then when you were oh, young? Oh, yeah. I would have my pint of coffee, ice cream, briars, and sit in my bed and dream. Go to the movies sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, the Lowy's Kings, where they had the greatest ice cream. <laughs> and we also... <laughs> well, yeah. No, was, you, you, you're like me. Someone will say, what was the best part of the summer? I'd say, well, there's this restaurant that has the mm-hmm. best coffee ice cream with chocolate-covered hazelnuts in it. Mm-hmm. And watching who in the, on screen, if to the extent you want to say or recall, somebody you watch movies and go, yeah, that's it. I'm going to do something like that. Not Doris Day. I mean, who no, was No, it was, well, I loved Marjorie Morningstar because I knew the summer places in where I was sent to camp in the Catskills or my mother and stepfather. When they came to visit me, I didn't know my mother was married. And I said, I'm going home from here. What do you mean you didn't know your mother got married? She never told me. So she was a boyfriend for a while? I guess. He was around. No, I never met him before. But when I insisted, see, I I was a strong kid. So my mother came to visit me with this stranger And I said, I'm going home. I'm not staying here another day longer. So we have to pack me up. I think I was seven and a half, maybe. So for a long time of your youth, you were raised by him. He was on the scene. Oh, yeah. When I go home, then he's in your life. He's in my life, this stranger. How did he handle you? Didn't like me. He didn't like you? Why? Because you weren't quiet? Because you had an opinion? That's exactly right. Was the connection with him, such as it was... Because the connection with your mother also was a bit thinner than you might have liked compared to your feelings for your father. I grew up in a house where my dad was my idol. Mm. I idolized my dad. And my Mm. mom, my older sister and I, we were her lieutenants. Chores, chores. Mm -hmm. And your mom didn't push him or cajole him or try to get him to... Never. Your your relationship with your mom was a little less than it was your feelings toward your father. Well... Or were you head over heels in love with your mother? No, 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 no. I, I, I felt that she didn't know me. She didn't know. But could she? I don't think my mother knows me either, but I've seen now in my life she couldn't. She wasn't capable. My mother never said to me, my mother's alive, and, she, mm. and I wrote this in my book, she never once said to me, what's it like to be you? When you get up there and do that, mm-hmm. what do you enjoy? But to understand me, and, to, and I'm her son, I'm her oldest son. And where was the conversation about what I go through in my life and my career? My mother never... It's nothing about that. My mother's love was shown through food. She would bring me when I was a young actress, you know, and I moved away from home when I was 16 from Brooklyn to New York. Got an apartment right next to my... 16. 16. I graduated high school at uh, 16, Erasmus. Erasmus, yeah. I graduated in three and a half years. 
so I could, I doubled my science and math, which I loved. I loved those subjects. Because you were desperate to get out of Brooklyn. I was desperate to be an actress, to get away from real life. Not a singer, an actress. An actress, oh yeah. And my, my singing was when I was five and six and seven on the stoop in Brooklyn with the girls, you know, singing and harmonizing. That was my singing. But my love was wanting to be an actress. And so that's when I went to the, the library, the 42nd Street Library, and read the plays of these great actresses, you know. And I wanted to be a classical actress. So part of me still feels like a failure. You know, when I wanted to do, I wanted to play, after I was well-known, I wanted to play the two Cleopatras, the one uh, Caesar and Cleopatra. and um, Antony and Cleopatra. Antony and Cleopatra, right. right? So one is a child, 14 years old, who I thought it should be Orson Welles or Marlon Brando, fat, you know, and then I would be even little. Well-fed, let's say. Well-fed, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and hiding, you know, from this man. And then play the woman, Cleopatra. And the television stations, I wanted to do it on TV. They said, well, is it going to be a musical? I mean, you're going to add music? It's like they can't see that you could do both. I mean, though, you have to do the music with the, you know... Absolutely uh, awful feeling. I wanted to play Romeo and Juliet, and I got to do it, finally, for Lee Strasberg at the studio. And it's one of my... I can't find the letter that they wrote me to. Well, that's a whole long story, but... Uh, to invite you to join the studio? Yeah, but when I first auditioned for the studio, I was 15, and I was doing it with another guy who asked me to just be in it, but they wrote me a letter to say, do your own audition, and then when I did, they found out I was 15. And they said, come back when you're, you know, 18. It's probably a nice way of saying no. But um, so that's why it was terrible. When I was in, on Broadway, I wrote on my <clears throat> playbill, I am not a member of the actor's studio. Because all the actors who were would say a member of the actor's studio. Right. And I was pissed off at right. them, you know. Um, but that was interesting. I did some of my best work then when I was 15 and 16. I played Medea, you know, and did that great aria after she killed her kids. And, you know, she says a line like, you know, something about this wound in the middle of myself. What a brilliant line. I mean, I am a woman, you know, with this wound in the middle of myself. Um, I was good then. And so, you're, so you're saying... This wound in the middle of myself at the actor's studio. And no, that was, that was for, um, just I did it in class, that scene from Medea. Where was your class? You know what I would do then? I would, um, I had another name. So I, I wanted, I didn't want to miss anything. So I went to two different acting classes and gave a different name in one. And then I used to, to make money, you got $4.05 it was to be an usher in the theater. So I would love to go see the plays. But in a sense, I didn't have enough money to see all the plays, so I, I became an usher in the theater so I could see the play. But meanwhile, I was 16, 17, that kind of age. I knew that I would be famous because I would hide my head so they wouldn't see me at my face, showing them to their seats, because I thought, you know, when I become famous... 
they're going to recognize me as the girl who showed them to their seats. So how do you figure that? that that's something I can't explain. You, you, you really, there's a part of you that knew you yeah. would end up doing what you did? Mm-hmm. To me, and I, I don't, you know, and my mother didn't believe in me. She's, she kept telling me, do what your father did, become a teacher. You get, you know, you get time college. off, for, you get vacations, free vacations, summers Snap off. Snap out of it. Yeah, learn to type. <laughs> and that's when I let my nails grow long. So I couldn't type. I, believe me, I wish I could type now. I have to dictate everything <laughs> into a All those things I wish I'd learned. French, <laughs> typing, yeah. cooking. That's right. No, but with, with your mother, did yeah. she eventually come around? I mean, how could she not come around with everything you've done? I think I was really just trying to prove to her that I, I could be famous. By the way, as soon as I became famous, I didn't like it. I don't like fame. I don't like stardom. I only like the work, the creative work. That's all I like. And your turn at bat, sir. At least I didn't fake it, hat, sir. I guess I didn't make it. With no formal voice training and no money to kickstart a career, Streisand relied on raw talent to build herself up and the wiles of a man who happened to hear her at a small Greenwich Village club called the Bonsoir. Marty Ehrlichman was a music manager and almost as young and hungry as Barbara herself. He used his slim Rolodex and razor-sharp PR instincts to help build Barbara's image into what it is today. I met Marty at the Bonsoir when he came one night. I was 19. And he saw me as the first act, the opening act, and said, if you ever need me, kid. I was, I was kept over at the Bonsoir many times, but then I couldn't get a job. Finally, I got a job. And they were paying me something like $75 a week or $100 a week, $100 a week. But I could eat, you know. So if people wanted me to sit down, I would order a baked potato, you know, sour cream and chives and yeah. butter. But I couldn't make a living, I really needed more. So I called Marty and I said, you know, is there any way you could get me $150 a week? Marty told me many years later that he actually paid the $50 because they wouldn't go for the, the, the raise. He loved it. That's why he's such a great person. Great he invested soul. in you. He invested in me, yeah. You've been with him now for how long? It's like... Well, we separated for a while for a few years. Why? He didn't get along with um, the man in my life at the time was John Peters. I've heard this story before. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but then, believe me, we got back as soon as I could. So that period is over 50 years. But if you take out the... What does he do know, for you now? What does he provide Marty? for you? And what does he provide for you now? You trust him? Everything. What? He reads scripts, you know, and he's my full-on manager. Today is his birthday, by the way. He's 88 years old. Oh Happy birthday, Marty Ehrlichman. Mm-hmm. I was watching these, um, you know, not just old Cavett shows where um, famous actors would come on. Is it a spring roll? Is it meat? I think this one is vegetarian. This, the, the, or Are you a vegetarian? Well, I don't, I don't need beef. Is there, eat the light one, yeah. I think it's chicken. Is it? Isn't that good? Mm, yeah. I remember I was sitting in your apartment years ago. 
I get very hungry when I work. And Sis Corman <laughs> was there. Oh, God, yeah. And you were going to do Prince of Tides, and mm -hmm. I came to meet with you. Mm -hmm. I remember. To do I the movie The Prince sat. of Tides. And your woman who took care of your apartment came in, and you said, uh, you said, yeah, I'll eat a little something. I could eat a little something. I could eat a little something. And she would bring us some crudite or crackers or whatever, some spreads. <laughs> and you looked at me and you said, oh, God, I, I got to, you know, I'm going to get ready to do a movie and I love to eat. And I said to you, I go, if we do this movie together, I'm going to hire us a chef. I'll pay for it. And this chef will come down and we're going to eat whatever the we want to eat. That's why I loved you, see? And you looked, I thought, I'll never forget, you looked wow. at me and you were like, wow. We could be I friends. I just forget about you know, <laughs> driving ourselves crazy with all this shit. Let's go down and make the movie. Have a good. If we feel like eating, we eat. If we don't feel like eating, we don't eat. We right. don't have to go crazy. Oh, what a great idea! And then you cast what's his name in the movie? Uh, Nick. I'm kidding. I'm teasing. Yes, because he had to be a white-looking Southerner. You know what I mean? You're I very New movie. York. I love that movie. Did you? Oh, good. Now watching those old, you know, Cavett's and on comes Brando and on comes this one and that one from that generation of Belafonte when he was mm -hmm, young and all mm -hmm, that civil rights mm -hmm. activism. Were you active then as well? Oh, yeah. I was supporting Bella Apsug for Congress in like 1970, 1970. I even supported Mayor Lindsay, who was a Republican because I liked him. I liked the way he spoke. You know, I thought... He was a leader. He was a leader, and he was fair, and he was believed in justice, and just liked him. He was also adorable looking. Um, so, you know, it's like, you know what happened when I sang in Houston, by the way, before the storm? I invited the Bushes, President H.W. Bush, I mean, um, 41, and Barbara Bush to come to my concert, and they came. And I gave him socks because I heard he collects socks, and they came backstage, and she brought me a pin, and I gave her something, and they were just so lovely. You know, he had dignity. He had great dignity. And she was an advocate for women's uh, rights. I like good people. That's why I can't quite understand what's happened to this country. And it all, it goes back to women, too, women against women. Yesterday, I was watching Hillary being interviewed by somebody, and the first question was so rude by the woman. Well, how do you know that uh, the Democrats even want you around? When, I, when she was running, there were three women who interviewed her as well, and they were so... The, Faces scrunched up, you know, on television going, well, so are you trustworthy or are you not trustworthy? I mean, they were like shockingly rude attitudes. And I told her chief of staff, you know, I think you should be interviewed by men. They're going to be nicer to her than the women. 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Now, how do you figure that? I saw her on The View this morning, and I think I would have said if he was in my space like that, I don't think you have to call him a creep, but you could say, you know, you're going to get your own time. They're, gonna, they're going to ask you a question, and would you like me to stand behind you in the shot? I don't think so. Yeah. So if you don't mind, can you if just she did that move to, out I of the space? I always say to myself, if she did that to him, I use mm -hmm. that phrase, yeah. and append it to a lot of things. If she had done that to him, if she right. had said that about him. Right. So 
You sing at Clinton's inauguration. You're close to Clinton, the, the old Clinton years in mm-hmm. the 90s. They were great. And they were great. God, they were great. Coming up, Barbara Streisand and I go deep into progressive politics and ice cream. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For Barbara Streisand, politics has always been a priority. She spoke out in support of Bella Abzug during Abzug's first congressional campaign in 1970, and she has remained politically active since. Streisand was a major supporter of Hillary Clinton even after Clinton voted for the war in Iraq. You have to remember this, because I've discussed this with her and um, President Clinton. She, at the time, thought that Bush would keep his word, Bush 43. Mm. 
And they were supposed to go to the UN. They were supposed to have weapons inspectors um, make sure that there was, you know, nothing there. That, that wasn't done. We had weapons inspectors because I used to talk to Scott Ritter, who was a weapons inspector there for seven years, and he said there are no weapons left. And if there were any chemical weapons, they have a, f a shelf life. They're, they don't work. That's what we saw. But they weren't even allowed to even complete anything. They certainly never went to the UN. And all of a sudden, you know, we're in a war. Without picking someone mm -hmm. in a current menu of candidates, I mean, there are two women that come to mind, Kamala Harris here from California, mm -hmm. who a lot of people are talking about her and how gleaming she seems right now as a candidate. And, of course, Elizabeth Warren. Mm -hmm. uh, but without picking anybody individually, what do you think we need to run in 2020 to beat Trump? What kind of person do you think it's going to take? Forget about man or woman. It's going to be a person who does what or who says what? Who says the truth. Truth is everything. I mean, that's what kills me. I love the truth. I love the power of the truth. You have to believe that person, and you have to believe they stand for what American values are supposed to mean, not like in the Newt Gingrich way of whatever that is, American values, but to be for justice, to be for diversity, to uh, be respectful. To accept change. Yeah. To accept change that the, in New mm -hmm. York, I'll never forget the Daily News. I mean, yes, this is a fact, I suppose. When the, when the census came out in 2010 or 2000, you know, every 10 years, the, the Daily News put on the cover that white New Yorkers were now the plurality, that they were under 50% that the city had now become 51%, literally, black, Asian, Hispanic, so forth, mm -hmm. that white New Yorkers in all five boroughs represented less than 50%. And I thought, well, that may be true, but w what are you promoting when you write that? And, and that's going to happen in this country. Mm -hmm. White privilege, as we understand it, and white mm -hmm. people, I'm not saying we're going to become Rhodesia, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think that people who accept change what choice do you have but to accept change? That this world we live in is going to become more and more diverse, you know, in terms of mm -hmm. people's sexual identity mm -hmm. and women in power and things like that. And I find that the Democrats, I mean, I'm very critical of them as well. The Democrats will say almost anything to get elected. I don't think so. Well, I, no, I, I think the Democrats... I think the Republicans will say anything to get elected. There's a difference. The Democrats, yeah. almost anything, and the Republicans will say no, anything the Democrats to are too nice. That's what you I think find. So? Yeah, they don't... I always wanted to run because I'm not very nice, and I wanted to be the... You'd probably be a hit. The, I wanted to be the more two-fisted Democrat. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it should be. You have to say it like it is. I'm you have to be the tougher to, Democrat. You have to be tough. That's actually what I said when I first met Obama. I said, we did a fundraiser for him, and it raised $11 million that night. And um, I sat with him, for, and I said, are you tough enough? That was my first question to him. Of course I'm tough, you know? But, I mean, this is a terrible thing to say, but, okay, and I know it can't be done, but when Russia was suspected of invading our democracy, I thought to myself, why aren't they postponing the election? How do you have an election now when Russia is hacking us? And don't we do it over? Huh? And don't we do it over? Yeah. Right. That's what I How thought. How is this valid? And whenever I've said it to anybody, 
They go, you can't do that. Why not? Right. This it, it is weird. Huh? It is weird. I to mean, sit there and say the, 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 the result of the election is entirely false, but let it stand. Because to yeah, change yeah, it would yeah, be really, no, the country couldn't have it. No, I mean, look at the difference. I'm going to write an article, actually, about this next week, about the difference in America. Right. Yeah, the difference in America, what it would be like if Hillary were president. Do you realize that women and girls could hold their head up high? She and Angela Merkel would be running the free world. Did you see the woman, you know, Wonder Woman movie? Mm. It was fantastic. <laughs> Because women were in charge. Women are nurturing. And women can be tough and make decisions that are uh, based on compassion and uh, wisdom. You know, even in the Jewish religion, women, the Orthodox Jewish religion, which I am not, but men have to say certain prayers every day. But women have to say less prayers because they are closer to God, because they are creative they they birth babies. They feed those babies. They nurture them after. And that makes them different. It does. My, my wife no. reminds me of that every day, actually. Well, that's good. That's how different women <laughs> are from men. Remember how more this. sainted women are than men. No, but it is true. But I think what we're missing with Trump is compassion, kindness, respect. Well, I like what you said. We're missing honesty. Huh? What I, what I like, as you said, is that we're missing honesty, and honesty is everything. If honesty, we just be honest, we'll get through everything. We, we can't understand the news. It was like a, he was a farce. He was a disrespectful womanizer. I'm still in shock. Huh? I'm still I am, in shock. But don't you see stress? Stress is causing me to eat, you know, more than I usually I'm gonna, as do. As soon as I leave her, I'm going to go pull on the side of the road and go eat something. <laughs> get a hot dog. I'm going to eat something. <laughs> a grilled cheese sandwich or something. A grilled cheese. Yeah, Wouldn't that a be grilled great? cheese. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's, you know, I found out that when you're stressed, you, uh, cortisol levels raise yes. you. And cortisol uh, makes you gain weight. Yes. I so know I was these on things. A, I was away with some friends for a week. I didn't read a book. I, I played games, which I played to fall asleep at night because I'm, I'm, after looking at TV and reading the news, I, I can't fall asleep. So you're I restless. have to play yeah. backgammon, you know, right. and gin. So, I mean... It was such an interesting thing for you who's an eater too. Every day we had bread and butter, you know. Uh, every day we ate pasta in Italy. Every day we had desserts with sugar. We gained nothing. Maybe two ounces, three ounces. You were less stressed ounces. out. We just let it go. Not having to wallow in them. I'll never forget Kathleen Turner. She said this on this show. She was one of my first guests. Mm -hmm. And I said to you, you were married to your husband, Jay. You got divorced. She said, you never got married again. I said, do you, do, do, do you miss that? Do you want to be with somebody? And she said, Alec, I put the key in the door of my apartment. And the thing that makes me most happy is I know that there's nobody on the other side of that door. Wow. I walk in. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. Or to blah, 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 blah. I mean, she really was like happy to be single. And you, you don't like to be single. No, you don't. but I was for a long time. But no, I like looking forward to my husband coming home and, you know, waiting for him to, so we could eat together. To <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he enjoys food too. I mean, we just take trips up to Santa Barbara just to get an ice cream cone from McConnell's, my favorite flavor, Brazilian coffee, which they don't sell in pints in the market. You have to go there or 
like now I can't have it in my freezer because I'll eat the whole pint. Oh. I just start with a little and a cone. Ah, just, you know, well, it's melting around the edges and sure. I'll just eat that part and just, no, it's gone. To me, there's that familiar sound. I'd be watching the news and it's like mm. 10 o'clock at night. I'd be eating a, a, a mm-hmm. late night pint of mm-hmm. ice cream. And then all of a sudden I'd hear that unmistakable sound of the spoon scraping the bottom of the, yeah, the yeah. can. I go, oh my God, how did that happen? But how come you're thin? How did you lose weight? I started lo- sugar. Sugar was my nemesis. Just took away sugar? I, I, I'm pre-diabetic and my numbers were tragic. And they mm. said to me, you're going to start shooting. What were your numbers? Uh, over 300. And, oh, they said, you're gonna, right. and they said, you're going to start having to shoot insulin if you yeah. don't get yeah. with this. Yeah. So I still uh, uh, do bad things every now and then, but nowhere near. I no. mean, I was somebody that ate. I was, I, I was, uh, truly, I can say this without... Uh, without hesitation, mm-hmm. I was an ice cream addict. Mm. You know, graters, having graters ice cream shipped you, to me you, from you Cincinnati. But you have to, look, one day when you're cheating, you have to try McConnell's. Do you like coffee ice cream or vanilla? Of course, I crave coffee ice cream. Okay, Love it's it. the greatest I can't get Brazilian coffee. <laughs> they were so sweet, McConnell's. Because when I did my last movie with Seth Rogen, I had to eat ice cream. So I said, I have to have the ice cream okay. from Santa Barbara. But I had them try something that Will Wrights used to do that went out of business. They had chocolate-covered, chocolate, that sounded so Brooklyn, chocolate-covered, chocolate-covered almonds in the coffee ice cream. So I asked them to make that flavor. Yeah, but now people develop nut allergies, so they hardly put nuts. Do you have nut allergies? No, I don't. What do we care about people with nut allergies? We don't have it. No, we do care about them, but now I just read they discovered a, a drug that will take away nut allergies. Do you ever read the magazine called The Week? I love The Week. Yeah. And I read an article in there that talked about there's a drug now to take away nut allergies. There was something I was going to tell you. No. All right, well, let, let's, let's stop this for a second. I didn't do, uh, I didn't do um, global, anything about climate warming. change. Fire it up again. It's so sad. You know, I'll tell you what happened, okay? In 1986, there... Chernobyl melted down in the Ukraine. This is how I got started with my foundation. That's why I did the One Voice um, concert in my backyard to raise money for Democratic senators. And they won. Five out of the six of them won. And the Senate became Democratic. So we were thrilled. And That money became my foundation. So the first chair I ever gave, you know what a chair is, right? A designated uh, spot for learning. Well, I gave it to study climate change. At that time, it was called global warming. But when I heard these stories about the, the earth warming, it frightened me so that that's why I started my foundation. And now, you know, the Department of Energy, the State Department, even the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, this Trump administration don't believe in the science, so they've taken off vital information on their websites. Can you, you imagine know, I saw this? That. I saw that, yeah. You saw that? And they told them to strip all that out of there. Schools where you're pre- not allowed to use the word climate change. They've, yeah, they're, they're pretending it doesn't yeah. exist? Yeah. Well, we better... Go to the moon or figure out where to live because you can't live like this. It may you be see too the, late. The streets Hopefully it's in, not. I know, but that gives no hope to anybody. Right. But the streets in Miami, the water's coming up through the sewers. I mean, please, why can't people? That's and why more I to said, come. And more to come. People can do something about it because people in numbers like these marches, 
are very powerful. Write your congressman, call your congressman, write the White House, stand outside in the front, you know, march something about doing something about climate change. My last question for you is before I get into trouble, because I want to take you to dinner and have that McConnell's Mm, waiting for you when I come back. Right now. I will. (laughs) And that is, when you sing, you know, people hear your voice and they, that melts them. It really gets to them. You know, you're the greatest female vocalist of all time. Oh, you're so sweet. I don't know. There's other women who I love. Mm -hmm. I'm not dismissing them, but you're the greatest female vocalist ever. What a compliment. And when you go into the studio, when you go to record, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there's a passion, there's a connection, there's a soul. I love recording because it's private. And there, it's just me and the music. You know, I could look like, crap, I don't have to dress up, I don't have to put makeup on. And it's just, it's just the sound and the, the musicians, the, the, the instruments and what I can hear and, and say, oh, I could hear a string line here with a sound and I don't read music, but I'll have to go, you know, it's eh, that, that note, mm, what is it? I don't know. But it's that chord, that chord, you know. I mean, it's just, that's fun for me. What I like is the way I record is though I can't, st- I don't stop at all and do anything. I do the song. I like to sing the whole song because to me, I'm doing a part. I'm doing, I'm thinking, I'm doing my work as an actress. And you tell them how you want to sing the song. Yeah. I mean, for example, like Zen of Bennett, there's that wonderful moment in Zen of Bennett when Tony's with those two guys and they play the song. There's that wonderful moment in the film and he sings the song and Tony goes, no, I want you to do it slower. Slow it down, do it slower. And they slow it down. He goes, no, slower. I want you to slow it down and do it slower. Really slow. And they play it slower. They look at each other like, I don't think we should play this song. And so he's like, yeah, I really want you to do it slow. Like, really slow it down. Like, you know, he knows. Of course. How he wants he's to. He sang with me here, right in this room. We did our duet here together, me and Tony, right? Does singing make you happy that you can do that? Um... Yeah. It does. I, I can hear things that I thought, oh, shoot, I should have done that over. Or, Is that the right take? I mean, whatever. But no, I, I liked when, when we put out a new album and Sirius Radio plays my songs 24 hours a day and I happen to uh, have the radio on, I think that was good. I want to say I love you. I love you too. And you're the greatest. The more I live, the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I realize, the less I know, each step I take, Papa, I've a voice now, each page I turn, Papa, I've a choice now, each mile I travel only means the more I have to go. I can hear you, Papa, I can see you. 
Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine, Adam Teicholz, Kathy Russo, Casey Bader, Zach McNeese, Joe Plord, Vahan Baladuni, and Ed Haber. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.